today on Ag News Daily. What we hear is this. Um, certainly people are worried about and concerned in the West. And, and I'll tell you what, it, it's, it's, it's somewhat state specific. So let's start with something that's very poignant. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's Ashton Carr on the podcast today with Delaney Howell, who did a little bit of traveling this morning. I certainly did, Ashton. I traveled, well, not in destination, but staying in Dubuque, Iowa at the Hotel Julian. For those of you that know the area, well, it's a very old historic hotel here in Dubuque. But heading to Galena, Illinois, and maybe Warren, Illinois tomorrow to see pumpkins and festivals and fall colors. But I tell you what, the drive over here was gorgeous. Things are changing colors and folks are out in the field harvesting. So it's a good time of year. I also did a little bit of traveling this week, Delaney. I am back home in the Dallas area visiting my family this weekend, but things are not looking the same, it sounds like. Definitely not experiencing a whole lot of fall weather down here. Definitely not changing colors of the leaves or anything of that sort. Well, you you probably don't get a whole lot of that at all, do you, Ashton? Yeah, no, not really. <laughs> Well, you'll have to make the trip up to Iowa sometime because it is gorgeous this time of year. I definitely don't doubt that, Delaney, but I want to go ahead and kick some news off today. And this is following up, I, I guess, with some World Trade Organization stuff that we've been talking about. And it is 60 ag groups are urging the U.S. Trade Representative to keep the U.S. in the World Trade Organization while seeking reforms. Julie Anna Potts, who is the CEO of the North American Meat Institute, says the U.S. meat and poultry industry depends on strong and forcible trade agreements. And Bill Westman, who's the Senior Vice President International Affairs, says it's important for the Institute and its members who are involved in exporting and importing products to make sure they're participating in international bodies such as the WTO. And he was actually quoted as saying, which will assist in establishing science-based rules for trade, making sure that countries are adhering to standards and using that sort of baseline for trade negotiations. And the coalition's letter to Trade Representative Lighthizer says, with more than 20% of overall ag production in the U.S. destined for foreign markets, U.S. agriculture is heavily dependent on exports. They say WTO rules and work are critical to future export growth. And I can't remember if we talked yesterday about the World Trade Organization stuff or if that interview will be airing today. But um, I thought it was a good follow-up for that discussion and kind of wanted to see what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, I have a little bit more to add to this. I'm glad you brought this story up, Ashton. So ag has been largely in favor of us remaining within the WTO. President Trump and other industry groups have threatened that, you know, the WTO doesn't do a lot of good for the United States. And we actually saw a resolution introduced by Missouri Senator Josh Hawley to withdraw the withdraw from the organization. And it provided one of the biggest motivations for this letter that you are referring to here. And so, you know, a lot of this was related to the Chinese trade war. We saw folks you know, saying China doesn't play by the same rules. They're part of the WTO. What's us? What's worth us being part of this group? And just like you're saying, Ashton, a lot of ag groups have said, if we pull out of the WTO, there's not a lot of benefit or reason for countries to trade with us and agriculture would suffer pretty heavily, it sounds like. So 
we'll continue to keep an eye on this story. I don't even know exactly legally what we would have to do to pull out of the WTO. I mean, obviously, we'd have to decide on it as a nation. But then from there, I'm not sure what the next steps would be. So that's something we'll do a little more digging on, maybe have another interview on that subject, because it it really could impact agricultural trade in particular. Yeah, I definitely thought it was interesting. And I I don't know that if we were to pull out of WTO, if that would even happen within the next coming months with the election going on. But it's definitely something to to keep the eye out on because the election is going on. So I feel like there's just a, a ton going on with government aside from the election. So I'm really trying to keep my eyes and ears open for for everything that kind of goes across the headlines, even though it's, I feel like, overloaded with government talk right now. Yeah, I would agree with you there. You're right. I mean, nothing drastic is probably going to be done ahead of the election. You know, I mean, I guess other than we continue to see subsidy money, and that's one thing, but I don't anticipate, like you're suggesting, Ashton, that we see major reform like that pulling out of the WTO happening ahead of the election. But I'm glad you brought up the election because today's interview, I believe, is actually with Rural America 2020, which is a group focusing not just on elections, but just bringing rural American issues to the forefront in Washington, D.C., which we'll get to here in just a little bit. But continuing on with the litigation I guess not really litigation. The WTO isn't litigating anyone yet. But uh, in other news, a federal judge is keeping a lid on further roundup litigation until November 2nd. So essentially, they're allowing Bayer and plaintiff lawyers to work together on a settlement addressing lawsuits alleging exposure to the herbicide-caused cancer glyphosate. And so Bayer has come forward and said that they have settled quite a few cases. They are continuing to resolve thousands more cases, and they are really improving their prospects, it sounds like, for an $11 billion deal to end the litigation and a settlement to be reached. So judge the judge from, I believe it's San Francisco, yes it is, has decided that until November 2nd, there can be no new lawsuits filed against Bayer. And in the meantime, they're allowing Bayer and all of the different folks involved in lawsuits time to negotiate and try and come up with a settlement first. So I don't know if you consider that a win, but that is kind of the latest status on all of that. Yeah, I've been keeping my eye on that as well, Delaney. But I've also, of course, been talking a bunch about the African swine fever outbreak that has hit Germany. And we are up to 32 cases of confirmed ASF now. And again, that's all in the wild boar. So Germany has come out and said that an intensified hunt of wild boar has kind of occurred in Germany so they can try and test them. But as far as they've seen, there is nothing in pork that's being raised or, you know, swine that is being raised for pork. But Germany is considered giving aid to farmers as prices of pork continues to fall. And state aid could come in the form of subsidized storage of unsold pork or financial support for farms. And aid for subsidized Storage would first have to have the approval from the European Union, but I thought this was interesting as earlier in the week I talked about the prices of at least baby piglets, not so much of 
export products going down. So we're definitely seeing that trickling effect going on in Germany from the African swine fever outbreak. But I just could not believe that they were up to 32 cases. And that's just since September 10th. And so it's definitely Mm -hmm. kind of ripping through those wild boar over there. But, you know, I, I guess one bright side is that it has not been confirmed in those um those pigs being raised for pork products yeah it's all been wild boars so far but you're right uh, september 10th to today you know 15 days with now 32 cases that's pretty quick to to see some new cases reported you know that's just what we've confirmed we don't even know what's not been confirmed yet so let's keep an eye on this story ashton but i tell you what speaking of hogs we saw yesterday the usda hogs and Pigs report showed hog inventory as of September 1st was up 1% as compared to a year ago at 79.1 million head and up 1% from September of 2019, but down 1% as compared to June 1st of 2020. So we also saw breeding inventory down 2% year over year, but up slightly from the previous quarter. And while we're talking reports, we also had the cattle on feed report today. And, you know, ahead of this report, cattle had been trading pretty aggressively, pretty bullishly here. And I think, you know, rightfully so. This this report we got today, not super friendly. We did see cattle on feed up 4% as compared to September 1st of 2019. And most notably, this is the highest cattle on feed report or the highest feedlot report we've seen since September of 1996 when this series of reports first began. So we saw placements um, 9% above 2019. And so I think the, the take home here is, you know, we are starting to see more calves filter through the pipeline. We're going to, as Walt Hackney would have said, chew through more beef here. And we'll continue to watch that to see how that impacts the cattle markets. Well, Delaney, speaking of markets, I'm all out of news. If you are ready to jump in, how about you? I am ready as well. And like I mentioned earlier, livestock had traded higher earlier in the session, but ended lower on the day. And While we saw that happening in the livestock markets, we saw grains have a turnaround day after significant pullbacks earlier in the week. In the December December corn contract, we saw it add a penny and three quarters today to close at 365 and a quarter, while the March added just a penny to close at 373 and a quarter. In the soybean pits, the November contract added two and a half cents today to close at 10.02 and a half, while the January added three cents to close at 10.06 and a quarter. In the Chicago wheat pits, the December contract shedding five and a half cents to close at 5.44 and a quarter, while the March down five and a half as well to close at 5.51 and a half. In the livestock pits, as I mentioned, cattle complex pulled back today, and I would suspect they will continue to pull back after today's not-so-friendly cattle on feed report. The October contract shedding 45 cents today to close at 107.57 and a half, while the December losing 87 and a half cents to close at 111.40. In the feeder cattle pits, the October contract losing $1.95 to close at 140.32 and a half. The November down $2.20 to close at 140.15. In the lean hog pits, the October contract adding 227 today, 
excuse me, $2.27 today to close at $71.75, while the December up $1.15 to close at $64.42 and half. And checking out the Dairy Class 3 Milk Futures, October contract adding $0.70 cents today to close at $18.85, while the November up $51 to close at $18.60. Without further ado, Ashton, let's kick it over to our conversation we had with Chris Gibbs of Rural America 2020. Today on the podcast, we have Chris Gibbs, who is the president of Rural America 2020. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Really tickled to be here. What a what a great opportunity. Thanks. Well, I'm tickled to talk about Rural America 2020. I visited your website, of course, did a little bit of research, and it, it looks like a very great organization. And so why don't you go ahead and tell our listeners about Rural America 2020 and what you guys are doing? Sure. Uh, well, Rural America 2020, we're a 501c4, which is a nonprofit, and we advocate for policies that benefit agriculture in rural America. And we're we're primarily focused on the you know kind of the economic crisis in rural America, and, and that, in our view, has been uh, fueled by the Trump administration. Now, with that said, um, we plan to be around after November 3rd. We're not just a a one-trick pony here that's going to end up folding up on November 3rd. We're going to make sure that we keep whatever administration comes uh, comes into to office, keep our feet to the fire for rural America and farmers as well. Um, I guess, I, is it all right to talk about the way we're structured and keep on going here? Is that okay? Absolutely. That would be sure, great to sure. learn more. Well, what we've done um, initially is uh, we've set up shop in six states, and we've set up stop, shop in the swing states, uh, where it really makes a difference. Uh, for the election, because the election obviously is the focus. Uh, we're in Minnesota, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Iowa. And in those six states, we've set up steering committees. And we've got 40, 43 people. I guess I didn't specifically count them. Uh, these are farmers. They're former legislators. They're directors of agriculture, um, teachers, uh, professors. Uh, rural community organizers, a real host and group of people that are interested in good, solid rural policy, whether it's trade policy, whether it's healthcare, and we can talk about all that, all, all that um, as we go along. But those people um, are our ears on the ground, and they tell what needs to be focused on in their specific state. And, and clear at the top, I guess. Um, I hesitate to say top notch, not that it's any better than anything else, but um, we do have uh, three board members, Tim Wolf out of uh, Pennsylvania, Cheryl Kobernick out of Michigan, and myself, I serve as the chair. And we are the three board members. That's your basic structure. So I'm interested, Chris, to hear a little bit more about the input, I suppose you could say, or what you're hearing from farmers. And and to be fair, you're also a farmer, so we can't rule your opinion out. But when you travel around or when you're working with different states and groups and areas, what are you hearing as the consensus for rural America's vote for 2020 president this year? Well, you know, certainly uh, if you look at the polls and you listen to the polls, um, farmers have been Sympathetic to the to the president, uh, to President Trump, um, 
and, and that's fine. And again, we're, we're not necessarily political. We can do some political stuff, but we're not going to advocate for one um, one administration over the other. But what we hear is this. Um, certainly, people are worried about and concerned in the West. And, and I'll tell you what, it, it's, it's, it's somewhat state-specific. So let's start with something that's very poignant, um, ethanol. Certainly, Iowa. Ethanol is very important to Iowa. Uh, Minnesota as well. Um, and then throughout the other states uh, to somewhat the same and maybe even a lesser degree. But overarching that, uh, rural folks are worried about health care. Um, they see an administration that continues to want to um, eliminate or cancel uh, the health care system we have. And we continue to get promised a new healthcare system just around the corner. It's going to be next week. It's going to be tomorrow. It's going to be soon. Uh, but we still haven't seen that. And so rural America is worried about healthcare. And how does that manifest itself? Well, it manifests itself in rural hospitals. Um, having access to good healthcare, having access to, uh, to the top specialists, um, maybe just 10 miles away or 20 miles away or 30 instead of 200 miles away. That's important to rural folks. Um, the response of the administration to COVID-19 um, has been a serious concern um, of, of the folks that we talked to. You know, uh, this kind of flared up on the coast uh, at first, Washington, New York, uh, California, Oregon, and so forth. Uh, but then now it's moved into the heartland. Um, and those areas are flaring up as well without a what we feel no coordinated um, national plan. Um, trade. This is something near and dear to my heart. Uh, this is how um, I became very, very active um, in this organization and, and why I uh, decided that I wanted to be a part of, of managing this and, and putting this together along with the other leaders that we have. Um, you know, I remember all the way back to 1980. I was farming then, just, just starting mm -hmm. <laughs> Just starting to farm. What a terrible um, time to start farming, too. Yeah, yeah. Right before the, uh, <laughs> the, the financial crisis, the uh, financial crisis of 1980. And what I remember from that time is when Jimmy Carter um, applied an embargo to the USSR at the time because they invaded Afghanistan. Well, I'm not going to get too far into the political weeds for you, but how that affected agriculture, we're still feeling the ripple effects of that today. You can draw a straight line from the fact that Brazil is now the number one producer of soybeans in the world, and by the way, is also China's new best supplier. You can draw almost a straight line, more of a scattergram, but you can get there very easily. Draw that all the way back to that decision of Jimmy Carter, which made the U.S. in the world's eyes an unreliable supplier of commodities. And the world said, you know what? I think we better hedge our bets and find other places that we can access proteins and crops and carbohydrates and livestock. So that set us on a path that farmers then, in the middle 80s, when there was grain running in the streets, 
literally, because <laughs> I remember I remember being up at midnight and all night building storage with a hammer and nails and two before and plywood in my neighbor's barn. So I had a place to store corn in the mid 80s because it was just everywhere. Well, you know, farmers got busy then and they traveled around the world. We made trade deals, one handshake, one relationship at a time. And how did that manifest itself? Well, one of the best things that ever happened to Midwestern agriculture then was NAFTA, middle 90s. Okay, we got that deal through. I'll tell you one thing. That was the best thing that ever happened, the best trade deal that ever happened to me as a Midwestern corn producer, corn, soybeans, and cattle producer um, in my uh, professional lifetime. So I'm talking about trade. I'm talking about why that's important to people. Now, fast forward to 2018, when the administration applies punitive tariffs beginning in March of 2018 to G whiz. I had a farmer tell me, he says, is there any country other than Israel that the United States hasn't picked a fight with? And he was talking about trade because we applied aluminum and steel tariffs to all of our traditional trading partners, plus Asia, plus China. And China's a special case for sure. But then they retaliated against us and hit us in our soft underbelly of the United States. And what is that? That's agriculture. And we have not recovered from that up until some pricing spikes that we had just literally seven days ago. So your question of what's important to people, trade, healthcare, COVID-19, those are important. So as you move here towards elections and, and, and you said beyond, you're not going to disband once we get through the uh, November elections here, but how will you continue to go about finding issues that are important to rural America? And more importantly, what do you guys do to make sure that those issues and people's voices are being heard in D.C.? Well, let, let's go back and, and um, I'll, 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 let, I'll let you and your listeners in on our secret weapon. Our secret weapon is that we are grassroots, that we have these steering committees that are leaders set up in each of these states, and they hear, they're able, they have their ear to the ground on what's important to their areas and what issues need advocated for, for whatever administration. So that's how we're going to continue on is to maintain these steering committees, because we're, we're not just three or four or five of us just making stuff up. We're listening to those steering committees and then that bubbles up. And then we put together digital advertising, um, advocacy, uh, social media, uh, billboards, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, right now, um, Iowa and Minnesota, again, like I said, very focused on ethanol and what's specifically important to them. You know, a year ago, the president brought in into the White House um, Senator Grassley and Senator Ernst and made promises promises to those folks. I think it was a what a thirteen point plan that that the uh, that the administration was going to um, was going to roll out on ethanol, increase the uh, the production of ethanol, and limit the waivers, and also make E fifteen America's fuel. Well, that never happened. 
that promise never happened. Those things never happened. Apologize for the dog, but this is the this is the era of Zoom. And so that never happened. So our expectation is, and we're we're advocating that very hard right now, that the president make good on his promises to make E15 America's fuel in the United States, because 40% of our corn production in the United States is targeted to the ethanol market. And if you lose, and, and we're already in a surplus situation where we're talking about close to 2 billion bushels of corn left over, if we pull any of that back from ethanol, we've got a real supply problem, and we're going to see decreased prices. So that's important. This, one, one of the ways we're, we're selling this, um, we're framing it. You know, uh, the, the administration likes to say, promises made, promises kept. Uh-uh, not on ethanol, not on ethanol. Promises made, promises broke. Yeah, Chris, I think that these conversations definitely need to be had, especially since the election is just right around the corner. And we definitely want to keep up with Rural America 2020 and see what kinds of policies and solutions that you guys continue to talk about. So where can our listeners find you guys at on social media and on the web so we can be sure to follow along? RuralAmerica2020.org. Awesome. Well, again, oh, sorry, go ahead, Chris. Excuse me, RuralAmerica2020.org. Um, is our website, and then on Twitter, and <laughs> my goodness sakes, just Rural USA 2020, I believe. I don't have my phone in front of me. <laughs> well, we will be sure to tag you guys so our listeners yeah, please can do that. Will you? head over and, and click that follow button. But again, Chris, president of Rural America 2020, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. You're very welcome to call anytime. Again, a big thank you to Chris Gibbs, president of Rural America 2020, for coming on and talking to us not only about Rural America 2020 and what they do, just also about the the policies that they are talking about and trying to bring those conversations to the table when it comes to producers and Rural America. Yeah, absolutely. I think the takeaway here is that, you know, they're working with folks to figure out what are issues impacting you and your parts of rural America and how can we do a better job bringing that to the people who can change things for us. So if they are in your state or if you'd like them to be in your state, you can check out their website, as Chris mentioned there. But you can also check out our website at globalagnetwork.com or more specifically the Ag News Daily podcast by checking out agnewsdaily.com. Ashton, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.